Welcome to Rice is Rice, a podcast about the British East and Southeast Asian experience where we talk about all things Asian and not. I'm Akina. I'm Jem. I'm Connor. And I'm Zing. <laughs> and Zing, what's your trait that you're bringing to us this week? Um, the trait where I'm like not a very good Asian is that I'm terrible at maths. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, throwback that... to like our first episode, I think. I'm so bad at it. It's just absolutely <laughs> atrocious. <laughs> Today we're having rice served with finding your voice with Zing Zing. Um, and so if you don't know Zing, if you haven't seen her name around, uh, Zing is the executive editor for Vice. She is also a, a documentary host and a journalist. And you are also the author of the Forgotten Women book series, which... I just got, by the way, um, so I'm on the artist one and it's actually been really helping me motivate myself in my own art practice. Um, it's been really amazing to hear about these women in particular and I wanted to share it with Jem, who is also an artist. Um, so yeah, it, it's been really lovely to start reading that and um, I have so many things that I want to share with all the other women in my life. Oh. Um, so I want to say thank you for bringing oh, thank that Thank you to so us. much. That's really sweet of you. I'm really, I'm really glad you like the artists as well. Because I feel like um, everyone like always talks about the leaders because I think it's the most like g generally accessible book. But I feel like writing the artists and also the writers was like my deep cuts of the stuff that I actually kind of, you know, I like wish I could paint or draw or write like the people that I was talking about in those books. It's like a goal. How long did it take for you to to do the research for those books? Oh my god. So the time frame for this still astounds me. So I basically <laughs> wrote the whole series and did the research in about a year and a half. <gasps> really? Yeah, I really wow. went into the Asian wow. overachiever mode. <laughs> oh my <laughs> Model minority for sure there. That's amazing. A year and a half. And yeah. all four? That's yeah, intense. so all four. Because um, the publishers really wanted to put them out consecutively. Yeah. And not just consecutively, but two at a time. So it basically meant that after one manuscript, I was working on two manuscripts at a time. And then once I filed those manuscripts and did the edits, then I would start on the next two manuscripts. So it was really like having to block those books out and organize my time properly and do all the research and it was really kind of I don't know like a year and a half long essay crisis where I just had to do loads and loads of research and reading and writing all in one go but I, I still think I'm never going to work as hard as that ever in my life. <laughs> what an amazing achievement and even more so now that I know like the time frame that you had to yeah. like cram it all into it's so much more of like an impressive feat but you you do bits like you do a <laughs> bunch of stuff um, and like so I'm not going to lie, as excited as we are to like welcome you on, on Rice is Rice, me and Jen were talking about it before we joined. We're so like a little bit intimidated because we're just so impressed yeah. um, by the work that you do. And I think so me and Connor watched your Empires of Dirt series. Yeah, yeah. No, I was about to say, I think the first time I became aware of you and your writing and stuff is actually through um, Angela, Angela Hoy, mm, yeah. the food journalist and journalist stuff. She retweeted or something about 
a tweet and I was like, oh, what is this article about? And then I read it. I was like, oh, this is so cool. And then I read like a bunch of other stuff that you wrote. And then I saw on YouTube, you did the yeah. Empire's Dirt series. And that's what Keen is talking about. Yeah, we kind of binged it together and we've just continued watching yeah. it. But I, I wanted to say what, what struck me about this series especially is like it's it's not simplistic in any way it's so rich in like historical context about this thing that just pervades every part of life if you're living in the UK but you deliver it in a way that feels really accessible um and like to we kind of dived already deep into forgotten women and and um, empires of dirt but to bring it all the way back a bit I wanted to hear about I guess your beginnings uh and whether journalism was always a goal for you or how when or how did that kind of spark in in you as a person? Yeah, I mean, journalism was never really kind of put forward to me as a potential career up until, I guess, middle of university. So I won this Guardian Student Media Prize, which I don't think actually runs anymore, which is a shame, um, for Best Feature Writer. And up until then, I kind of worked on my university paper and kind of just thought it was just a fun thing to do with my mates, you know, hanging out in the newspaper office and dossing around and skipping lectures and, you know, just <laughs> writing whatever we wanted. It was so much fun. And then when I won that prize, and I think that kind of gave me the license almost to think about it in a different way. Um, because I don't know about you guys, but when you grow up in your East or Southeast Asian, you kind of always think, well, I can do stuff for fun. I can do it as a hobby, but I can never, it can never be my main hustle. Yeah. And I always have to have yeah. something dependable to kind of lean on. And actually, it's not even something that's just, you know, East and Southeast Asian people. I remember speaking to uh, this author, Natasha Brown, who's written an amazing new book called Assembly. And she's black and British. And she and I both went to Cambridge. And she was like, when I graduated, graduated into the recession, I just wanted something dependable and stable. And I always thought writing was never going to be my main thing. So we really vibed over that. And I think that that was kind of my attitude until I won this award. And I had like newspaper journalists who, had judging, who were judging the prize coming up and saying, oh, you know, what's your next step? You know, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And I was like, I don't know, I'm applying for grad schemes and advertising. Is that wrong? What should I do? Um, cool. Luckily, I didn't get onto any grad schemes. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I really failed there. That was a flop. Um, and, um, and then I kind of thought, oh, maybe I should look into this journalism thing more. But again, I felt really intimidated by the industry because it seemed so impenetrable and it was like nothing like I'd grown up with. Mm. When I was growing up in Singapore, I moved here when I was 16. In Singapore, the media industry is really, really tightly controlled by the state. So you'll have, you mm. know, the national English language paper, The Straits Times, but everyone on the board is basically a government bureaucrat. So it's really tightly controlled in that way. Yeah. And there was never really that kind of aspirational goal or understanding of how you broke into the media back then. So when I won that award and I did my internship at The Guardian, which was one of the prizes, um, it kind of gave me permission to dream a bit. And then when I graduated and flopped and didn't get into any of the grad schemes, I basically, <laughs> I basically thought, well, maybe I should do this in a more systematic way and, you know, really get taught the craft of it. So I did a master's degree in journalism. And that really helped because the emphasis there was so much on getting a job, you know, doing interviews, 
making sure you had somewhere to go when you graduate and you had a job. And that was kind of what happened. So the first job I did was online editor of Wonderland, Wonderland magazine. Oh, and amazing. I was basically mm. doing their socials and doing their website. Um, and I was the only one on that team because this is literally donkey years ago. It's like 2011. And Instagram then was still very much a new thing. Twitter was very new. You know, yeah. everyone was still slapping those sepia filters on Instagram. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> Just thinking that, like, that's what I was exactly. thinking. This is, so, you know, I'm, it was it was a, it was a wild experience because here's me 21 years old straight out of uni getting getting to go to fashion shows and taking Instagram pictures of models and slapping a horrible filter on them (laughs) and putting them up but that was just how Instagram was so from there that was my first job and then I went to Dazed and Confused and then from there I went to Vice uh, and I've stuck around at Vice ever since so that's kind of been my journey it's been really unexpected I if you told me when I was 19 that I would be doing this now I would have just thought you 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 were talking nonsense basically I want to ask because I always ask this of people who kind of speak about taking the road less traveled and going into something where it didn't seem like in your reach, like growing mm-hmm. up, um, because I've kind of I'm kind of going through that now. How do you find or how did you find that courage to just be like, yeah, let's just do it. Let's just do it in in how you said like in in a systematic way um let's just try it I think I tried to give myself as much support as I could so rather than just Mm. leave uni straight away and flail around trying to figure out how to get my way into the industry I chose to do a degree that set out parameters where I could do this of dream of mine Um, and I think that was really really helpful because once I understood what people's expectations were and how I could go about them, then I could kind of think, okay, what about this do I like? What about this do I like? What can I take from this experience? I can then kind of translate into doing what I really want to do. Because, you know, when I did the journalism degree, a lot of it was based around, you know, this idea that you, the dream is to get onto a graduate scheme and being a reporter for, you know, the Times or the Guardian out straight out of the gate Mm -hmm. and then just working your way through a single outlet and until you're basically like a section editor or something like that. And I completely didn't do that. So I went into fashion journalism instead, which wasn't really ever kind of discussed at my degree course and just kind of, I guess, took what I'd learned about how people would operate and, you know, do their job well at a regular conventional broadsheet or newspaper and just applied it to, you know, fashion when I started out. And then, kind of did fashion and kind of got a bit, went a bit off it, to be honest, because the time I started at fashion magazines and websites was when uh, it wasn't just autumn, winter, spring, summer. So they would have cruise, cruise collections and resort collections. And before you knew it, it's like uh, 365 days where you're just going to shows, pumping out content, looking Mm -hmm. at clothes, which for some people is like the dream. But after a while, I literally just felt like I was on a hamster wheel. So I kind of, yeah, exactly. It's like the constant, constant content creation is just like crazy. Um, And so I decided to kind of step away from that and go into more general journalism. So that's where Vice came along. And yeah, I've stuck there ever since because the stuff we commission and cover is like so broad. So yeah. it's really, really suits me. Yeah. Um, well, we know we know from 
looking through your work, you're kind of interested in um, women's issues, all the LGBTQIA issues recently, issues that affect us as um, British East and Southeast Asians, uh, politics and lifestyle. And it's, it's, it is broad, as you say. Have you always had these interests or are they something that you've built over time in your career in, into journalism? I think I definitely built it over time because... Mm. I think when I started out, I was very much interested in fashion and culture and style. And then over time, I kind of expanded it to start thinking more about, you know, political issues and social issues. Dazed was yeah. really good at that. Um, I remember one of the first print issues I ever worked on was um, the Girls Rue the World issue, which has this incredibly iconic cover of Lupita Nyong'o from 12 Years a Slave. You know, when she was mm-hmm. really being mm-hmm. hyped as the next big thing. Obviously, she's huge now, but she just had her breakout role. Yeah. And it was just an entire issue full of women creatives yeah. um, talking about their work and, you know, why they were kind of at the forefront of this new movement of women really owning the stuff that they did. And I loved working on that issue so much. And that kind of set me on my path, I think, for yeah. not just being a straight fashion and culture journalist, but also incorporating politics and, you know, social issues. Yeah. So it's kind of like fallen into each other and you pick stuff up along yeah, the way. Yeah, exactly. It creates for like a really interesting journey. Yeah, yeah for, for sure. sure. Yeah. And also it's been, it's, I feel like lots of people look at the stuff that I put out and think I've been, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like 22 or something, but I'm not, I'm really old. I'm haggard, you guys. <laughs> I'm like, you know, when the government, you know, when the government was like, sorry, nobody under 30 should get the oxford vaccine because you're all too young um i'm not getting i'm getting the oxford vaccine i've got the oxford <laughs> vaccine i'm old I'm, I'm over 30 uh compliments to you because like you can go yeah, for it oh my god for sure you definitely look at just a very knowledgeable like 22 year old <laughs> yeah i mean i've been i've i spent oh, i'm trying to think of how long i spent in fashion like probably about five or six years before I started joining Vice and doing the stuff I'm doing there. So that's like a long, that's a long time, I think. And also because of that, I think that's why I've been on social media for this long. (laughs) Yeah, so you kind of, you're like moulded by this world of social media. And that's something actually we can get into later. But while we're on this now, since since you brought up time Mm -hmm. and age and years, um, since... I asked you about your beginnings. Uh, I wanted to also ask you about what's changed over those years, about how you think about things and how you approach your career, journalism, the style that you've kind of developed. I think I've gotten much more comfortable about talking about myself and my work and my background and heritage because I think when I started out in journalism, it wasn't really about me Um I was talking about, you know, I was interviewing designers and talking about clothes and stuff like that. And though those things are really personal, for some reason, I just never felt comfortable relating it back to myself. And I think it's only been in the last probably one to two years where I felt comfortable bringing my own heritage and my own background into the work that I do. Um, And Mm. like even five years ago, I don't think I would have been comfortable talking about myself or my heritage 
in something like Empires of Dirt, I would have wanted to keep it completely yeah, objective yeah. and factual, which it is. But, you know, I'm also bringing in stuff like, you know, there's an episode I talk about the opium wars and I talk about yeah, how my grand, yeah. my great granddad died of opium withdrawal. Yeah. I think five years ago, I wouldn't have wanted to share that information. Yeah. And I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm growing more comfortable with age or maybe I give less mm. of a shit. But either way, yeah. um, I'm really glad it's I've gotten to that point because... I think it's important to talk about your heritage and your background, especially yeah. if you're East and Southeast Asian, because yeah. there literally aren't that many of us in the media. Yeah, yeah I was going to say that with, I think, I mean, like Akina mentioned earlier, that we were feeling quite nervous speaking to you because I am a fan. Like I, I remember thinking when I when I first saw, I think I saw you in Vice first and then I saw your BBC Sound stuff. And um, I I really wish that I'd grown up seeing someone more people like you within the media um, and talking about your heritage and, and personal stories, because I think that kind of level of representation and feeling like you're seen and understood, even though we don't have exactly the same similar stories, it's just nice to hear that. Um, mm -hmm. And it feel, you feel kind of like some kind of connection. Um, so yeah, I was going to ask like, Oh, what's changed? Like why, why did you start feeling more comfortable? Is it, do, do you think maybe like, because in the, most recent years more and more people from like our background are kind of coming into the media do you think that's kind of helped in you voicing your story more I feel like more and more I started realizing how I guess identity issues got weaponized in the press um especially in the right-wing press and how so much of what people were talking about was based on air and candy floss do you know what I mean it was you know this entire idea of oh Brit the British Empire was always great and everyone who was involved in it every single country we occupied and ruled should be really grateful because we gave them all this cool stuff like A-levels and trains <laughs> and <Yeah>. you're welcome <laughs> A-levels and trains <laughs> this should be the book version of Empire of that and it's you know it's, and you know, on one hand, it's true, you know, Singapore did have A-levels and O-levels because of the British. But, you know, coming from that background and coming to the UK and hearing all the stuff being said about, you know, people like my family, because my family comes from Hong Kong and Singapore and further back, my dad's family comes from Indonesia, which was also part of a different empire. Um, it just made me really pissed off that people were basing this off absolutely nothing and that the people who actually got colonised weren't being heard or weren't yeah. being understood. And I'd always sort of noticed it when I came over to UK because people would be so surprised when I told them, oh, you know, Singapore has, you know, I did O-levels, you know, like your granddad, you know, Singapore's first language is English because of the British and people had literally no idea. Yeah. And I thought that was stunning I because in Singapore you learn about all this stuff you know one of the really big stories in Singapore history is how Singapore was basically occupied by the Japanese during World War II because the British messed up basically they pointed their guns in the wrong direction and the Japanese army basically came over on a bridge and after that the British were like oh oops our bad let's go and at the time, Winston Churchill said it was the worst defeat that the British had ever suffered. And yet people in the UK don't know anything don't know about it, Singapore yeah. or how yeah. the British were involved there. So, and I think that stretches to a whole bunch of different things, you know, like Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So many people don't understand the relationship that 
Britain has with Hong Kong. Um, in Satnam Sangera's book, Empire Land, there's an amazing section that really took my breath away, where he basically finds out that Tony Blair, during the handover, hadn't realised that Hong Kong had been a British colony. So he was having to... Yeah, Wait, I'm right? What? <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> So, so they basically handed Hong Kong back to um, China with literally less than zero understanding of why Hong Kong was even there to hand over. Wow. And I was like, this is the prime oh, minister wow. of the UK and he still doesn't understand and he had to read up about it. That to me kind of signifies this amnesia just That's goes crazy. back all the way, like goes back decades, yeah. goes all the way up to the top of society. So I think when I started... And it's a exactly, choice. Exactly. It's a choice not to educate yourself. Yeah. So I think that when I started realising how deep it went and how much that lack of knowledge had been weaponized into something quite poisonous against people of colour here, that's when I was like, okay, maybe it will help if people like me start talking about it more. Because I think it's really hard to argue with facts. And that's yeah. basically what Empires of Dirt is. It's facts. Mm. So coming off of that, and because obviously you've had a very um, like varied background and heritage and growing up and doing all these like different types of journalism do you think all of those things kind of helped inform you find your own voice or when you were kind of looking because you know a lot, a lot of writers a lot of their main thing is like i want to you know stand out and have my own like type of voice and stuff were you the type of person who was straight away like this is me and this is what my voice is going to be or were you like kind of you know, a lot of creatives kind of copy people at first and then from that, they kind of like mold their own style from it. Which one were you? I still don't know what my voice yeah. is, to be honest. <laughs> oh, <okay>. um, <laughs> I feel like, especially when you're a journalist and you're, you write for a whole bunch of different publications, part of the job is kind of molding your voice into fitting whatever that publication mm. is. So I guess... The voice that I use to write for Vice is quite different to the voice I used to write for British Vogue. Um, and you can like just tell that if you read the Vice website and you read an issue of Vogue. Um, part of being a journalist, I think, is that adaptability. But at the same time, it really does screw you over because when you ha come to write your original stuff, you know, the stuff that, you know, fiction, nonfiction, you almost like struggle slightly. And I think it's something that I'm still yeah. going through mm. because, you know, writing Forgotten Women was kind of like a exercise in journalism because there was so much stuff you had to cram into these profiles of the of these women that you don't really you know you don't really have like the luxury of you know stylistic flourishes um whereas with non-fiction and fiction that's longer and kind of more less episodic i think that you have a chance to really flex those muscles a bit more so in future i really hope i want to write more long form stuff where i can get to do that um, because I think it's a really cool exercise and I still think I'm in the process of finding my voice. I actually feel like a lot of authors, you know, they kind of don't come out of the oven with a baked in style. Their style changes over the years. And I think that, yeah. you know, a lot of people pick up a book and they're just wowed by the style and the tone of the author of the author's voice. But that sort of stuff is crafted over a whole number of years with like a whole bunch of people's help. So if, you know, someone listening to this is like, I don't know what my style is, I don't know my my voice is, I don't know what mine is, you know? So I think it's just a matter <laughs> of process and just figuring out as you go along. So is it like a type of um journalistic code switching? Like you would write in a certain way for have you ever found yourself being like writing an article or like a guest one for Vogue? And then be like, 
oh, this is like way too vicey for them or something like that. Or are you pretty good now at like nailing down the tone before you Is it like second it? nature? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, I definitely had to work on it before. Um, I definitely had to like work on it to get to that point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's sort of a bit like code switching because, you know, there's some words uh, that you would never say in Vice and there's some words you would never say in Vogue. It's mm-hmm. kind of like how... I don't know if you noticed this, but the New York Times actually doesn't allow swear words. Um, mm. So they will go to oh, all kinds of ex- lengths to avoid using a swear. Um, and obviously Vice swears all the time. All the time yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so that's like the most like, that's the most obvious way that I think you could, that you can pick up on this kind of code switching. You definitely have to do it, especially mm. in when you write for a whole bunch of different publications. That's an interesting, interesting. that's an interesting thing to me though, what you said about like writing things for your own and suddenly you have like all these different hats to choose from. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I just, I have nothing to lead into that. It's just, it was in my (laughs) mind. I was like, Oh, I never thought about that. That like suddenly when you write your own stuff, it's like, um, who am I now? Like, how do I write if I'm not writing for this publication that has a specific like tone, tone. And audience yeah um yeah i think also that's the, yeah. that's one thing that a lot of journalists struggle with when they start writing fiction um just because i've done the women's prize podcast i did it for a few years and everything that the authors were telling me i was like wow this is a completely new way of writing that i've never thought about before because all these women wrote novels um, and they were writing it because they could literally hear the character's voice in their heads and or they were, you know, on the train and they just started writing it because the urge suddenly possessed them. And for me Mm. as a journalist, it's so hard to get into a headspace of just being able to give yourself the license of making stuff up. Yeah. And that's why I'm really envious of artists like you guys, because it's like... As a journalist, you're always looking for the source material. And Forgotten Women is about, Mm. it's kind of like that as well, because the source material is out there already. It's nonfiction. Um, But the luxury of making stuff up and just having complete creative control and free reign is just, wow. (laughs) I really respect it. It's something I need to let, I need to kind of start working on myself. Going on from voice, I was wondering like, um, oh, by the way, can I just say, United Zingdom is such a good name. Yeah. Like, I yeah. know, when I, when I, when Kira was like, oh, this is Zing's podcast. And I was like, oh, what's it called? And she's like, United Zingdom. And I was like, oh my God. I cannot, I can't I, take, I respect the pun so I much. I can't take credit for that. That was like the BBC commissioner who came up with that. It was, it was an amazing, oh, yeah, well. full credit to but, um, Yeah, so did you ever expect, like, as a, like, written journalist or I don't know what the time is but did you ever kind of expect to hear your actual voice like on you know like on film and yeah, on podcasts and stuff because I know a lot of people they're like so comfortable writing and stuff but they're so like camera microphone shy you know but you're quite yeah. natural when you're talking it's quite um it's not it's not like a teacher but it's like <laughs> it's, it's, it it's like, like someone telling of, you off <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's like a it's like an educational type voice you know it's not just like a conversation it's like you're here to tell us stuff you know? yeah i mean you're like, bringing the team <laughs> <laughs> i i never thought that i would present stuff to be honest it was only until i got to vice and it was by complete coincidence that someone asked me to present a video and i think it was a really short it was a short form kind of news report from a right-wing protest 
um, that was happening in Westminster. So really it was like a baptism of fire. Um, and <laughs> it, was, sure. it was, it was very hectic because um, you are just kind of thrown into the action and then someone points a camera at you and says, okay, Zing, can you tell us what's happening? And your brain needs to be working at a thousand <laughs> miles an hour because you're evaluating the number of people there you're also evaluating whether you're in a safe enough position to start recording because some people can be really aggressive towards media. Uh, you're evaluating the mm. next thing you have to say and what the next sentence will be. And you're also evaluating what else you need to find out because you're on the ground now. So I really enjoyed it because I'm sure you can tell I, I do a lot of different things and even in my professional life. And I think that mm. being able to take that adaptability and do it in a single news report is really, really exciting because I like that feeling of having a million things on the go because I'm quite, I guess I'm quite ADHD in that way. I actually got diagnosed with ADHD when I was a kid. So I think it really suits my brain to be working that fast. And obviously after a day or a few days shooting, your brain is just exhausted. But I really like that feeling. I like that feeling of knowing my brain's yeah. worked hard enough. So <laughs> I've never, ever thought that I would get into presenting. It was basically the encouragement of people at Vice who were like, I think you could be in front of a camera. Um, that kind of pushed me there. But I feel like in the last like 10 years or five years or whatever, being press has less protection than it did before. Because mm -hmm. like if you would go to protests or if you go to like kind of more yeah hostile situations, if you wore like a press badge or a press vest or something, even like police would be like okay you're here to just observe and stuff but now like it's not just in uk it's internationally police and law enforcement and you know people of power are like oh they're pressed let's also get rid of them type thing yeah i mean it's really hard to see the rise of that kind of sentiment i mean it's kind of always been there but i feel like it's definitely been encouraged by this government so mm. i don't know if you saw recently that uh, one of the ministers, Kemi Badenoch, basically leaked the emails of a journalist saying that, um, oh, this journalist is trying to twist my words and it's another sign of, you know, yeah. how bad the press is in the UK. And actually, it was just a quite a standard professionally written press reach out to give her the right to comment on something they were writing about, which is standard practice and also just polite good manners. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think that it's always kind of been there. There's always been a segment of the population who are, you know, same as the kind of people who are into conspiracy theories who don't like the press, but I think it's definitely being whipped up more by the government. Um, and it's also been quite frustrating because, you know, when I did, when I did politics at uni, the press is considered one of the foundational pillars of a democracy, yeah. like a fully functioning, yeah. healthy democracy should have a fully functioning, healthy press yeah. and it should be independent and be able to operate without interference. Yeah. So I think it's really dangerous now that we're at this point where, you know, I remember that first protest I talked about covering for Vice on camera. There were people coming up to us and saying, fuck off and trying to block the view of our camera, mm. asking us really hostile questions about where where we were from and what we were doing there i think it's really dangerous because it puts yeah. people in physical danger as well but you know it's also not a great sign of our democracy that people can be so hostile towards people whose job is literally to tell them the truth yeah. and i suppose as a, like a journalist who's also a woman of color it's mm -hmm. probably like you know yeah amplified a bit there's an amazing clip of um this 
other right wing protests that I attended um, where this woman. Oh, God. I'm trying to remember what she said to me. It was at the time very hostile and scary. But on reflection now, it's quite hilarious. So we were <laughs> we were actually managing to talk to the organizer of the protest because he'd been quite evasive before. And the minute we started talking mm. to him and getting him on camera, a group of people started crowding around us. So we were quite a small team of maybe three or four people. And this whole group of right-wing protesters start surrounding us and shouting us down. And then this one woman starts pointing at me and saying, you're the reason Sharia law exists. And I was like, what? what? And at the time, I didn't even hear what she was saying because everyone was shouting so loudly. But then watching the tape back, I realized that that was exactly what she was saying. I was like, can this woman really be saying that? I kind of chose <laughs> to ignore it. But it's literally there on tape and it was, I actually now just find it hysterical because am I really? Is that what you You personally. Yeah, that's so much reason. power. <laughs> so many things to unpack there. That's really so funny. Confusing. It kind of reminds me of um, also Vice, J Jamali Maddox, mm -hmm. his oh, yeah. theories. He was like, it was some like BNP or like that type of, you know, group. And some guy was explaining to him why like Islam is bad and it brings Sharia law and then Jamal just goes you know I'm not Muslim <laughs> and then the guy just like I was like uh, uh, yeah yeah and then he's like of course I do that I'm just, I'm just saying it <laughs> and he's like his brain just like kind of like can't, glitches yeah can't handle literally just can't handle the information yeah I think it's cool to see that you now have like a developed sense Around of humor there. about looking back at these things I guess you have yeah. to really hmm. um, if you're going to be surrounded by it yeah, so much yeah. but um it's actually actually no let me tell you about this other anecdote uh, um, which is so which is also so funny do it so on, on one of this on one of these protests um we interviewed these i think there were two or three lads um and i mean you know lads lads, lads. Um, <laughs> yeah, lads. and uh we were saying stuff like why are you why are you on this protest and you know they were saying the usual stuff about oh, there's too many immigrants in this country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm obviously, you know, not British. Well, I didn't come off as British because my accent's not quite English. And um, mm. my producer was French um, and spoke with an accent as well. And you know, giving us this really good game about there's too many immigrants in this yeah. country, it's blah, blah, blah. And then the minute yeah. the camera yeah. stopped rolling, they turned to us and were like, all right, you're going to give us your numbers now, yeah? <laughs> 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 and I was like, that is a 180 if yeah. there ever was one. And and we were we were just we were just said, um, sorry, excuse me. And they said, yeah, yeah, alone. Can we swap numbers? And I was basically, I basically said, um, no, sorry, I don't think we're interested. It's not very professional. And then we had to walk off. <laughs> That's a. I mean. That's the icebreaker, wow. I guess. So yeah. If you want to pick up well, on someone, yeah, sure, yeah. you could call be... it an icebreaker. <laughs> yeah, spend ten minutes going on about how much you hate immigrants and then ask for our That's numbers. That's insane. <laughs> the audacity! Wow. Oh my god! Yeah. I wish. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like I don't need to ask, but like, were they white? Um, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's caucasity, a hundred percent for sure. The caucasity of it. Yeah. I wish. Uh, it, that exists somewhere just like seeing what your face <laughs> looked like like what your was, reaction was to that. i was so sad the cameras had stopped rolling and we'd taken the mics <laughs> off them because honestly 
I would have been gone. It was, gone. Such, a, it was so such a funny. hilarious moment. Uh, would you say that you know you you want to do more of the presenting side, and uh, or do you still feel that writing is like the core of like who you are, and that is where you want to maintain your focus? I would love to keep balancing both of them mm-hmm. because writing can be quite a lonely process, especially yeah. if. Mm. especially right now in lockdown where people are a little bit more funny about meeting up in person, rightfully so. Um, You're meeting people on Zoom or you're talking to them over the phone and I really vibe off face-to-face contact and getting to meet new people. Whereas if you're making, you know, videos and documentaries and podcasts, you kind of generally do work with more people and you meet more people in the course of doing it and I really like that kind of social aspect to it. We're talking about like finding your own voice and and the your style and the way that you deliver things, um, but of course in your work you'll have you'll be needing to meet and speak to a lot of people and kind of, um, I'm sure touch on some things that might be difficult or or sensitive, um, um, or completely new and strange. Uh, how what's your style in in kind of yeah? How do you carry yourself, or, or what's your approach to like getting these stories from other people? Um, yeah, amplifying other people's voices in mm. uh, in a way that creates like a narrative. I guess I've always kind of tried to connect with people um, and try and find common ground with them, and also just make them feel as comfortable as possible. Um, And sometimes it can be really hard because emotionally it's hard for people to open up and also emotionally it's hard to be the person receiving it. I remember there was one interview I did with um, an acid attack victim for a documentary I made for Vice a few years back and this guy had been randomly attacked uh, in the car park of a cinema and I think it was racially motivated, essentially he was Asian um, and he basically had to wear a mask because his face was so messed up from the acid burns and he was still kind of healing and processing what happened. And that was really, really emotionally tough for both of us because I think on one hand, he really wanted to speak. But on the other hand, when you're processing and describing a traumatic experience, it's very hard to like keep it together. So your job is to help them keep it together and to also listen. Um, And I also think a lot of people are really bad at active listening yeah. Um, and active listening sounds like a really hokey psychobabble term, but basically it's about, <laughs> it's basically about just actually listening to what someone is saying and picking up on it. Yeah. And a classic kind of journalist yeah. trait is, you know, someone says something like say, the sky was really blue on the day that I got attacked. And then you ask something that followed, that shows you've been listening to what they were saying. Yeah. Like what made you notice yeah. the sky at the time? Yeah just so it signals mm. to the person that you are listening, listening you are like taking yeah. it in. Yeah. Um, and I think the worst thing you can do is come in with a whole bunch of list of questions and then like do n- and not deviate from it. Just, yeah. yeah, just keep throwing them in, you know, and it's a really, really difficult skill. Like I still find myself messing up on this yeah. um, and not listen, not properly listening to what people are saying. And you, if you're a journalist, you find this all the time, you'll listen back to interviews and you'll hear someone back on tape say, something super interesting and then the next question you ask is some dumb one that you had prepared because you yeah. knew you had to say it um and not right. actually picking up on what they said and i kick yeah. myself all the time over right that. i'm sure yeah. gosh i'm sure that's the most difficult thing i would be so like 
kicking yeah. myself and being like, that could have been yeah. gold. Like, um, and it's like you just didn't pick up. Yeah, I can I can relate, and I think that would definitely be one of the most difficult things because I am, uh, yeah, I'm quite an empath, and so if if I was listening to this person's story that you you interviewed, I don't think I could keep that together. Yeah, no, and, and exactly. It, yeah, I think I just would start yeah. crying and i know it's so like unprofessional and like it doesn't make them feel any better mm-hmm. um, yeah not necessarily at least yeah, yeah i think that's the thing it is it uh, it's as like i'm also like an empath like I, it's really hard to desensitize yourself i think to to those situations and kind of you know your natural instinct if someone is getting upset about something and crying is that you want to be supportive and you want to hold them and you want to like tell them it's okay but almost you know I guess because I my background was that I was working in law um, while mm-hmm. studying law and I was going to go into human rights and one of the reasons why I decided that I couldn't do it was because when I did work experience I couldn't desensitize myself and I'd find myself like almost crying um, so I really admire that ability that people have that you know you, you can still show support and show that you're listening but not get so like emotionally invested that it kind of doesn't help the situation Mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah. and I think that is you know human rights activism is such a good example because people like that deal with the worst Mm. every day in and day out like the worst bits of humanity Mm. and what people are capable of doing to each other and you kind of need to develop an off switch yeah because otherwise you take it home with you and also it doesn't serve you and it doesn't serve the people you're trying to help either Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah it's really hard I don't think I could I mean, I don't know if I could work in an area like human rights law either, to be honest. I mean, I like being able to have to do kind of fun, light culture stuff on top of doing really serious stuff, too. Yeah. Um, I guess like going off from that, um, again, I've mentioned like we the first few episodes of um, the current season that we're on with Rice is Rice. We started off with some like difficult topics, obviously, because right now with all all the kind of the Asian hate crimes and um, it's been like really emotionally taxing on us and and we were saying that it's hard when we want to create um like this platform as being something where it's educational and we can inform people about the current news and and talk about it at the same time when we're doing this research and we're reading about it and preparing for the podcast or in general even not preparing just going through social media we've been so drained and kind Mm -hmm. of like burnt out from it all and it's we've been finding it really difficult and um we just kind of want to to know like how have you been able to kind of get a little bit of an off switch to be able to t- still take it in and still talk about it but not let it really get to you mm-hmm. therapy i mean yeah i feel like this last few months have been probably the toughest ones for me as a journalist because it's been writing and covering stuff that has been so close to my heart and mm-hmm. You know, you can't help but you project your mum or your auntie or your grandpa into the stuff that's happening. Because, and I always say this, it's like East and Southeast Asian people were so underrepresented in uh, in the media and in public life. And, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think representation politics is like the be all and end all, but I think it says a lot as to why people are finding it so hard to deal with what's happening now. Because for the longest yeah. time, you just did not see our faces in public life at all and then now when you do see them it's in the context of people getting killed that is really really hard to handle and i think that you know 
like I said, getting people, you know, representation projects isn't everything. But I think in this case, it would help to have more stories of, you know, Asian joy and Asian families. You know, I love the fact that there's so many kind of Asian stories in Hollywood right now, you know, like Minari, you know, yeah. Nomadland, who's, who's directed by Chloe Zhao. These are all like amazing kind of antidotes to the other kind of news cycle about us right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mm. think it's really difficult to handle. And I've been talking a lot about it with my therapist because I think what the Asian, what the Atlanta shootings kind of brought up is all these kind of like past experiences that people have had that then contextualizes it in this wider kind of mainframe of violence and hatred. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whereas before I was like, oh, whatever, it's just some like lame guy saying ni hao to me on the tube. Now Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, does this guy have, what kind of intentions does this guy have? Mm -hmm. Is this guy a violent shooter in the making or mm. am I, you know, and it's that kind of constant reevaluating your safety that yeah. I find very new. And I think it's very exhausting for a lot of people, especially Asian women. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I feel for you guys. Right. I mean, I know like, yeah, I've been going through it too. It sucks. Yeah. It's, I mean, you, you saw the changes in social media and, and nowadays social media just makes it so that it's, inescapable mm-hmm. even when you want to kind of yeah. take a step away from from the news cycle that we're seeing um and of course it's it's like way more part of your life than it is ours it, it's like i do have a choice to just turn it off um though i do feel like a responsibility to know mm. about these things i'm sure it's way more intense for you looking into these stories and, and that being part of what you do mm-hmm. as a job um but yeah, I mean, I think you've already answered the question. Therapy is like always kind of the answer. That's like, yeah, just do it. But is there anything outside of that that you do to decompress? I think just talking to people who know me really well and who like have my best intentions at heart about it. Like people I love, my friends um, have been really supportive, my loved ones. Because I think the more you talk about it, the more people understand what a big yeah. deal it is. Because I think this is the thing, right? If you're not talking to someone of... East or Southeast Asian heritage about it a lot of the time they don't connect the dots Mm -hmm. and I found myself in the position of having to explain stuff a lot so Mm. you know being the person who has to educate your non-white you know your white peers is quite exhausting at the same time but yeah so having that support of people who kind of know my journey and know implicitly why I'm upset over things has been really invaluable so yeah like surrounding yourself with like good people who get you and you don't have to explain yourself to them and you can just say this really sucks you say it as it is yeah exactly I hope you guys have those people Uh, um yeah yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) um that was a very interesting thing about you saying how you kind of have like educate like you know your white friends who are like what's happening right now of Asians what do you think because a lot of argument not just Asians like any people colour they're like it's not my job to educate you go do it yourself or do you feel like they're asking you so you should you know kind of give way and tell them this stuff or would you rather be the person who like points them in the direction of something they can educate I mean the good thing about being a journalist is I can literally just drop them a link and tell them to go read (laughs) Um, I feel like everything everything I have to say about educating people about that I've done work on um, and Mm. what I find is that a lot of people it's not that they genuinely want to educate themselves but sometimes they just want to use that as an excuse to not engage with the issue you know that kind of blank 
oh, I don't know much about it. Can you just like send me something to read? And then you send them something to read and you're not entirely sure if they've read it or processed yeah. it or understood it. Um, yeah. I think that's that's the issue. I think that it's there's some people who do want to le- educate themselves and learn more. But there's also some people for whom now that becomes kind of a defense, you know? Yeah. And also, let's face it, you can literally read every single book there is about anti-racism. And unless you connect it to your daily life, there's literally no point. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Um, But now I think it's time to move on to our segments. It's time for Bite Size Bites. Uh, Gem, do you want to sing a theme song? (laughs) Bite Size Bites! (laughs) (laughs) Great. To give a brief explanation of what we do every time we have a guest, we have a full conversation, but sometimes you just want to know the tiny things about what makes our guests, who they are as people. So the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask these questions, just shoot it off to us. Uh, Are you ready to go? (laughs) Oh no, I'm sweating now. (laughs) (laughs) First question, rice or noodles? Rice. Favorite app on your phone? Twitter. Why did I say that? (laughs) Writing or presenting? Writing. What was your last meal? What was my last meal? Oh, um, I made... (laughs) Pearl barley with miso and mushrooms. Ooh, that oh, that sounds so good. Oh, it's good. It's good. <laughs> Choose one to give up: books or music. Oh, <laughs> music! I can tell that was a, tough a very one. questionable choice. Yeah. Favorite word: blue. Blue. <laughs> Tea or coffee? Tea. And I feel like I know this answer, but easier paved route or road less traveled? Road less traveled. And favorite podcast. Favorite podcast, United Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, no, no, no. I want to say this. Okay, I'm going to get this name right because I'm so bad with dates. But the 1619 podcast. It's 16, like oh. 16 the ratio. Like- so it is. So it's a New York Times podcast about uh, slavery and its abolition. Wow. Oh. Really, really good. Um, and also, mm. <laughs> it's also so difficult for me to recommend because I keep wanting to say 1816 for some mm. reason. <laughs> so I mm. always have to check well, it. So 1619. 1619, yeah. 1619. Yeah. Is it the date? Why is it called 1619? The date. Yeah. yeah. So that's like, yeah. yeah, that's a historical date. I think it's the date where that basically marks the supposed beginning of slavery in America. Yeah. Yeah. This last one is always my favorite question because I get so many good like yeah. podcast recommendations yeah. from our guests that I just start listening to. So thank you again for this one that I definitely will start listening to. It's funny that we choose this segment out of all our segments to do with guests because they always get really stressed. And we just stress <laughs> out the guests that we invite on the podcast. <laughs> That's why it's good. Yeah, it's good. It's, it's um, kind of pressure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So nice question. You were talking about like liking that pressure of things going a thousand yeah, exactly. miles per minute. So actually, you're welcome for <laughs> providing. I'm like, why did I pick music to give up? What? You now you're gonna. Now you're now gonna I'm be thinking about myself. it. <laughs> Firstly, thank, thank you so, you much. so, so much. much again. We've said it quite a few times, but thank you so much for joining us on here um and we always ask this is there anything that we should look out for um that you're working on anything that we should be excited about plug 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 plug, plug. oh no i hate i hate having to like plug stuff on the spot um god uh they, oh 
this isn't related to kind of Asian identity or anything like that, but I would love it if people could check out a new campaign we're running on Vice called Fund Our Fun. It's basically supporting nightlife, clubs, gig venues, so that when oh, stuff nice. actually does reopen, we'll actually have places to go. Because, and this is, you know, it's horrendous. Places are closing left, right and centre. Yeah. And I feel like everyone's yeah. getting so hyped about lockdown ending. They don't realise that if you want to have any fun in the next few months, you've got to keep these clubs and venues going. Yeah. So we've done an amazing map on fundafund.vice.com where you can see your local club and gig venue and send them some money and some love. Oh, nice. Yeah. I read your piece about um, DJs and, and having them having to like kind of retrain. Mm-hmm. And yeah, a lot of people are affected um, by the pandemic, but it's such a, it's such a, big thing when like your skill mm-hmm. is now affected yeah. something yeah. that you've built like you've built over years yeah um, and that you yeah, love that's... doing as well um, um thank you season three of empire of dirt is that coming <laughs> uh you will have to ask advice we're working on something it's not quite empires of dirt it is like similar themes yeah. um, but oh, it's okay. very much in the planning stages mm-hmm. we'll watch out for it yeah so you can find the rest of our episodes all of season one and our season two so far on spotify and apple Podcasts and pretty much every other podcast platform um you can also find us on our socials so we have little short form little clips and um quotes and fun stuff on our instagram uh which is at rice's rice pod on twitter at rice's rice underscore pod and on youtube we'll be um releasing some more clips soon very very soon um (laughs) i know we've been saying that for a year but i promise soon um rice is rice zing do you want to have instagram and stuff yeah, so people can find me on Miss Zing. Um, I'm Miss underscore Zing on Instagram and Missing with no underscore on Twitter. Perfect. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, also, 24th of April, 25th of April, our live stream. 24, our 24 charity... Wait. Oh, wait. <laughs> 24-hour charity live stream. Um, no More Quiet Asian, you know, all helping organisations donate and um, fund... This is really yeah, bad. I was like, yeah. what are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Join us 24th and 25th of April for our 24-hour charity go. live stream, No More Quiet Asian, where we'll be helping organizations get funds because, you know, a lot of bad anti-Asian stuff is happening. Um, where I'm going to stay up 24 hours. So great. Exciting. So guys, tune in for that and then watch out for any updates on who we managed to... <laughs> Convinced <laughs> yeah. to join that one too, um, but cool. Thank you for listening, and I and I thank, hope. Thanks, Zing. Thanks, thanks so much, Zing. Zing. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yes. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Don't forget to get some rice in your life. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.